Hey everybody, this is Kim Blackwell and Louis Extravaganza and this is Work, Work, the podcast. Voices for the voices that go unheard. Okay, so we're super excited about our guest today. Oh my God, super excited. Super excited, you guys. We are talking to Brian Rabin, club impresario film producer so a lot of you probably know brian as the host of giorgio's disco which has just celebrated its sixth year oh my god it's so fabulous you fabulous guys. and the you know cherry on top of the sunday of la yes. um club cherry which actually is the longest running club in la history in la history club cherry which brought together drag queens you have the Rock and roll scene, 70s glam. Well, it was a big smorgasbord of culture. And it was very successful. But what I want to start off with. What you want to start off with? Not many people know this, but he was an ice skater. And not only an ice skater, a figure skater. Like Olympic level figure skater. Okay, so let's get it. So let's let's take it back. Brian, so you are from originally? I'm originally from Chicago, from the North Shore of Chicago. Oh, really? Uh-huh. I didn't know that. Yeah. Why did I think you were Southern? Uh, because my parents retired in Scottsdale. And to save money, I used to register my cars. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you're a kid, every penny counts, right? So, yes, yeah, I'm from a place called Northbrook where all the John Hughes movies were filmed. I love it. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. Yeah. My uh, my fa- my father's side of the family is from Chicago. Okay. But I don't I don't think they're from where you guys are from. It's a really weirdly segregated city. <laughs> right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. I think, I think still, right? Chicago. Very much so. And yeah. I didn't really realize how much it was until I went back to start visiting cuz my family is not there anymore. Right. And right. if you're in the north outside of the city, it's like Privileged beyond belief and gorgeous and beautiful. And if you're in the city, the north is gorge and the east is beautiful. You, it, The sign goes from east to west. It literally goes from like you can eat off the sidewalk to filth in the street. Oh, north goodness. to south, the same thing. And I learned that it was originally built that way to be segregated. And it was set up where, you know, people of color couldn't buy or own homes in certain districts right it was the redlining yeah back which, in those days yeah what, are are there literally like aren't there tracks also like there's literally they're like, li- on the other side of the tracks right. yeah exactly That's and so you are are you jewish i am jewish were you observant did you guys were, were you practicing where did you grow up in a religious familia? no it's funny i come from a very long line of bialy makers um really my, yeah my family That's awesome I yeah my great great Sorry. uncle Benny, I believe, was one of the first Bialy bakers in New York. Benny Bialy, mm-hmm. I love that. And they were in the Bronx. <laughs> they had about ten or fifteen stores before I was born, obviously. And it's a it's a cute little story. They um, they were their trucks were getting blown up, and you could only be a Bialy or a bagel baker. There was a union, which really I thought it was some kind of family lore. But Mimi Sheraton from the New York Times wrote a book called The Bialy Makers because she was doing articles about foods that were being lost from the vocabulary of, you know, of our palate. And um, she found it a really interesting story of these eight families, which mine was one of. And yes, there were 
there was a union and my grandfather went in and pulled a gun on, he was tired of paying the protection and the truck started getting blown up. So they left New York. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> on a bread this truck. Is a, this turned into like some mafia story. No, right it's great. It's Why crazy. Am I for this? Anyway, they, uh, they had to learn how to make bagels because they thought the goyim, for the people that don't know Yiddish, the non-Jews in the mid '60s in Chicago wouldn't know what a bialy was. And they, pro- yeah, probably didn't. Yeah, really, a lot of people dying, wow. yeah. dying that. right now. That but is... I love that history. That that artisanal, you know, right? that it was real. Those were art. You know, mm-hmm. those were artists making. For sure, I love a good bread. bialy yeah. though. And so. Yeah, I knew he was a figure skater and i just geek out on figure skaters so yes. that's why i'm so excited about well Brian Raven here. yeah so let's get into the figure skating yes <laughs> word how when where what is it what did you love the best triple sow cows i want to actually i love triple sow cow but i um <laughs> i and i have video imagery which is we can talk about in a second but um we in growing up in chicago there was a rink in every village they started, the park district started building them around 69. It's cold enough. Yeah. And there's nothing to do there in the winter. Right. And I went to an ice show and I saw my neighbors in it and I became absolutely obsessed. I live. So my mom started letting me take classes. I didn't know anything about real ice skating. Which and how old are you at this point? Like five. Okay. Oh, wow. But I didn't know anything about competitive ice skating. Right. The program that was in our village wasn't geared towards... USFSA, which stands for United States Figure Skating Association. And figure skating is actually based on figure eights. Right. Right. So there was none of that going on. It was like recreational ice skating and some classes and an ice show. And then one day I ditched school because I wanted to skate more because I was obsessed with with skating from, you know, the freedom of it. And to be alone, it's like a meditation in in motion. Mm -hmm. I saw these kids with this weird machine making a scratch into the ice, a figure eight. And I said, what is that? And the girl, and everyone's being quiet, and there's 22 patches, little pieces of ice, where they're practicing the figure eights, and no one's talking, and there's no music. I had never seen that before. Right. And this girl came over. She goes, oh, you must be one of those, you know, for fun ice skaters. This is... No, mean girl. Mean girl. This is real ice skating. Yikes. So I said to my mom, I want to learn how to, you know, she said to me, this is how you go to the Olympics. You go through these tests. And I went to my, I said to my mom, I want to to do that. And I was a, a naturally gifted free skater. I was a terrible figure skater and I started because of my personality. I couldn't be quiet. I was constantly in trouble. And, um, I started that much later, but my mother, um, you know, I would have to get up before school and the patch would start at five forty-five. and we lived a few blocks from the rink. And my mother was like, if you want to do that, that's great. But you're going to leave your skates at the rink in a locker and walk over there. You know, she wanted to know that I really wanted to do right. that. And she never was like a pushy, mother and so it escalated to where I left home um first at 10 uh, for the summer and the fall and then I left for good in the seventh grade and I trained with Carlo and Krista Fossey at the OTC that had four Olympic gold medalists Dorothy Hamill Peggy Fleming John Curry and Robin Cousins and now Um, where is where is the OTC at uh at the Broadmoor Skating Club in Colorado Springs wow um 
And you go with, do you go with your mom, one of your parents? No, neither of my co- parents went. I lived in a dormitory called Beatty Hall. Okay. And I also lived with a family. A lot of families took ice skaters in. Yeah. So I had a very unconventional, after the eighth grade, I didn't go to regular school. Um, you have a tutor there? I had a tutor. Right. And, um, you know, I would always start in the bottom with, you know, the figures, you know, in, in the old days that counted for a lot of your score. And then I would win the short and win the long and pull up into the top three. Um, so, you know, my last year I was skating, I, I was here in California. I switched training and actually some of the best trainers in figure skating are in Los Angeles. That's mm-hmm. crazy. It's nuts. The facilities aren't <laughs> are great. Ice ga- are there even ice rinks? There's here? a few ice rinks, yeah. but, um, the facilities are terrible, but you know, Three of the best coaches in the world are here. Frank Carroll, Barbara Rolls, and John Nix. God, I had no idea. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I was injured in 87. I was in one division below the Olympic division. Oh, my God. And um, I was a terrible figure skater, as I said. Yes. And it was the first time that I had been off the ice for longer than a week. And I started thinking. And I thought, Oh God, I'm going to be old if I stay in until 92 or 94. That was the track that I was on for. For that next Olympic mm-hmm. competition. Right? And if I don't make it, th- I'm going to be then so what, old. Right? Then what? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, which is ironic because I, everyone who I beat in free skating ended up going to the Olympics and they eliminated figures by, I think like 91. So it would have been a completely different ball game, but I had... As my coach Barbara says, I'm the one who got away, but I had a lot of bigger ideas I needed to get done. I, um, I loved music and I loved fashion and I wanted to, to get at it. You know, I, whether I knew I was gay or not, I knew I was different from a young age. I saw Blondie on the Midnight Special and from that point on and from grade school, I studied everything I could study about Andy Warhol. What, I didn't know the word to it yet, but that underground culture right right and i knew nobody that my family knew none of my sisters had friends that looked like that but i knew that it existed in new york and i knew that it existed in los angeles and so i was already here in la my coach was really cool she's like i don't care what you do on saturdays as long as you're not sluggish on monday right Right. so we were you know shrieking around underground clubs starting you know in 1985 and up on the sunset strip and um, I just got really lucky. I ended up um, going to professional school with a cast on. And it was all actors and athletes. And I went on a casting with a friend of mine for this Japanese job. It was five cars, so five principals. And with each car, it was like commercial, industrial, billboard, poster, da, 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 da. Right. I'm just sitting there. And the, the casting person comes out. I think it was one of the Sobo sisters. Oh, yes. And, um, <laughs> and she said, okay, you're next. And I said to my friend, well, I don't even have an agency. He said, just sign in under the light company. And um, so I did that, and I ended up booking the job. And I was, I was just 18, and the check came for 21000 and change. So I was like... Honey, on it. I'm on my way. Uh huh. <laughs> so you never on skated it. again. No. After that, actually, I I was to? really bitter about it, mm-hmm. and I never resolved it. So when I was 38, 
I went skating one day and it felt so foreign. And I found out from a friend of mine that there was adult competition. And I found out that I qualified for the masters. And um, I didn't think anything about the timing of it. It would be right after the Oscars, which is the busiest time of the year for me at that time. And I said, I'll do this if I can do triple jumps again. And I didn't learn the new judging system. I came up under a 6-0. I just wanted to skate. And I did a triple sow cow and a double axle at 38 years old wow. under pressure in the routine. After having not been yes. skating for, for years. 20, for 20 years. Wow. Wow. And I trained about six and a half months. And um, it was the greatest experience of my life. It really showed me what, why I was... It showed me the great things in my life, why I'm able to do 16-hour days and be a glutton for punishment from clients. And then it showed me, the, you know, the other side of the coin, like, you know, never being able to give up on something or, you know, so it showed me the good and the bad. I right. mean, you know that as a dancer. Yeah. You know, they call your name and you better go. It doesn't matter. You know, it's showtime. Yeah. Go. Showtime. Yeah. Which, I mean, ugh, that's why I was so obsessed with figure skating i mean I, I i was coming up as a dancer but i really wanted i wanted so bad to be a figure skater god bless him my dad bought me hockey skates instead mm -hmm. of figure skates so i'm trying to turn and do whatever they're trying to do and you know it's not working in hockey skates no so. it wouldn't be happening he's like look no. you're already going to these dance classes okay bless Just his heart but he took us ice skating like you right. know often and I don't know. I is I just had an, such a special place in my heart, and it was always my father taking us. So that was a memory that I will, you know, that I will always have. Plus, in the eighties, that was when it was huge. Yeah, the eighties, yeah, and it peaked with like, yeah. Hamill and Michelle Kwan, like all that yeah, yeah, whole yeah. time. It was it was huge, and it really peaked with uh, Nancy Kerrigan yes. and Tanya Harding. Oh, who and I, that was oh. my well. That's my next question: Nancy or Tanya? Uh, Nancy was uh, the better all-around skater. Really? I, did, I did trips with Tanya. I have photos with her. It's hilarious. The thing that Tanya could do is she jumped like a man. Yes. And she had that athleticism. She had huge, massive jumps as high as the rail. Yeah. We came up exactly through the ranks exactly at the same time. And she did that monster triple axle. But, you know, a jump doesn't make, you know, a gorgeous ice skater. You know, it's all the things in between and the line and the spins yeah, and right. all of that. So there's that there's that line where it's where it's athleticism meets, you know, beauty and grace. Some people felt that Tanya didn't have enough grace. She skated like a truck, like a Mack truck, <laughs> you know, yeah. the, but what she did, what she did as a woman and not to sound misogynistic at all. Right. That triple axle was as big as any man's, and it was is beautiful. It was gorgeous. Yeah. But you know what? She wasn't the complete package. It had nothing to do with her background. They tried to say that. I mean, yeah, she came from a really rough place. But you know what? If you're rough, you can still point your toe, right? And you can still, you know, extend that hand into infinity, you know, and you can still make that neck long and gorgeous. So, you know, hmm. there's that. So you've got this twenty one thousand dollars. Got this $21,000 and I uh, stayed at my coaches till I finished school and then beat it onto the streets <laughs> so fast. That was a $21,000 strut. Hey. Yeah. My father said, why don't you buy a condominium? I was like, heck no. Condominium? Condominium? What do you mean? I got to go to Maxfield. Yes. I need some Gautier right now. 
you know, like, and you know, no one tells you about taxes or anything oh, like no. that or, or it tells you to put away any for a rainy day. Right. Um, so I got myself a little apartment on Hollywood Boulevard. I bought myself a 1963 and a half Ford Falcon Sprint convertible. Yes. And I went out every single night. I went to, you know, three to four places a night. And what was happening at that time? What were the, what were the clubs? Well, you were- well the thing is, is that people, uh, there was no press around. Right. There was only one press person, uh, Janet Charlton from the store. She was <laughs> never allowed in anywhere. She would wear get-ups and try to get in and she couldn't. For a but thing. what was happening was it was a really interesting time. It was before the riots and it was when all the great clubs were downtown LA. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it was a great combination between art, music, film, fashion. And because if you had a cute personality, you looked cool, you were bringing something to the table, they would let you in faster than a TV star. Absolutely. I mean, TV people, they were like, yuck. Rich people, gross. You know what I mean? Like, it was just about, if they're famous people in a club, it's because they were great at doing something. And they actually would go to those clubs to be with their own tribe. You would go out at night to find your tribe, what you were in musically or into fashion or art. They were all combined. So we didn't have the internet. And, uh, I mean, that's how you and I met Kim. We became part of a, of a night tribe. Yes. And you all inspire each other and you're, you're learning from each other. And, um, it was glamorous and exciting because you could be in a room, you know, with Joan Collins and Jack Nicholson and, uh, Timothy Leary and Janice Dickinson and, you know, every kind of great glamorous person. And then there were street kids. Yes. And, you know, and yep. the celebrities were actually looking at us to kind of mop our looks. Yeah, like, what, what are they doing? <sighs> oh you know, God. it wasn't from a stylist. Right now. Uh, yeah, it <laughs> wasn't from a stylist. It was, you know, it, they, there was no such thing as a stylist. Right. Right. You know? Yeah. So it was, and it was really exciting to me. It was mind-blowing because you could get access to anybody. You could walk up to anybody and talk to anybody. And people were much, because once you got past the rope, they assumed everybody was safe that was in there, regardless of what kind of economic background you came from. You just had that thing and you were part of that mix. And so, you know, that started my journey with nightlife going out like that. So we're talking about like this 1988, 89, 87, 87, 87. Okay. And so you do your first club when, well, let me back the truck up. Okay. I started, I'm not tall enough to be a model, but because of that Japanese commercial, I was doing a ton of commercials in America. Okay. And then they contacted my agency to, um, come to Japan to be a model. And my agent, my commercial agent was totally against it. She wanted me to be in acting class. I was like, are you kidding me? I have trained my whole entire life. I'm not going into some acting class. You nuts. So like I, I, you know, split to Japan and what I would do is make a bunch of money and come back and go out every night and like, Oh, okay. Do a couple of commercials. Oh, do you know what? I want to get out of here again. And so go are you, back do to you Japan. have a plan of that? To, are you thinking what you want to do next? Or you just kind no. of, right. Uh, not, not at all. I right. was totally winging it. And I knew I wanted to stay in LA. Okay. And I knew I wanted to make enough money that I could go to London and I could go to New York. And in those days, someone would give you a number of a friend and they wouldn't know you and you would just call them when you got there. Yeah. Or like a couple of days before and said, oh, I'm a friend of blah, blah, blahs. Can I come stay? <laughs> sure. You know, and you know, so that's kind of how it happened. And then I did my first party when I stopped looking out like I was 16. 
I um, which was last month. <laughs> <laughs> right. I did, I think it was eighty nine or ninety. I think ninety wow. was it, Kim? Were your first party? Was yeah. it the lounge? The lounge. Yeah. It was around that time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we just drove around. My partner Jimmy Medina, the great love of my life. We drove around in a car, and we would see like a four lease sign. I don't know where we got the nerve or how we did it or why the landlord would allow us, but we would say, can we rent? The first the first party we did was down the street from a club that was really happening called Max on Hollywood Boulevard in Cahuenga. It was above the Methadone Clinic, and it was a costume rental shop. I live. And the entrance was in the back, right? Yeah. The alley. That's right. That's it. <laughs> That's exactly right. And you had to go up these like really steep stairs. Exactly. And, you know, we just said, can we rent your place? And, you know, everyone turned up, like all the cool people in town came, a bunch of celebrities came and I just thought, okay, so I wasn't even of age yet. And, um, you know, I just, Jimmy and I went for, Jimmy had a, a, his acting career was really starting to take off and that I thought, okay, this is what I'll do for money. Like I just stepped into it so the first thing was just really just throw this party it wasn't this whole idea of this is going to be my career this is what i'm doing no yeah. i just thought i, just I better make bring some, everybody to get <laughs> yeah i better make some coins right and i also saw that the 80s people were sort of now buying clubs right. and since i kind of knew i knew everybody that i thought well maybe i could do this because they're stepping out and there's sort of a vacuum so there was a thought in the back of my mind. And then after the first one, I went, okay, I'm moving in. I can do this. And I can do this. what was amazing about the lounge, it was literally just a space. There wasn't bells and whistles. It wasn't this glamorous place. It was like all these people who just made this party that came together mm-hmm. to go upstairs, you know, up these stairs through an alley. And it was, fun, you know, it's great. Yeah. And I always felt, you know, from reading a lot about um, Andy Warhol and especially about Studio 54. Yeah. I really believed and I found out that what in Los Angeles, things are segregated here because of the distance and we don't get to see people on the street like we do in New York. Right. So, you know, I knew from Studio 54, that was the first time that gay and straight people mixed, the first time black and white people mixed and Puerto Rican people mixed and royalty, actual royalty that came from Europe and they did it because of the music. And so I figured if... They could do that in New York at that time. We can do that here in L.A. Absolutely. And, you know, it was about the music, you know, and to me, it always still is about the music. The music dictates everything. How long did lounge last? My memory gets fuzzy because I was having a lot of fun during those years. Yes. (laughs) Um, I think maybe a year and a half. Okay. It was completely illegal, so we were ahead of the cops. Um, so we moved it every week, but we would rotate spaces. Um, yeah. So no permits, just gorilla style. No, and gorilla <laughs> style. And they hadn't made the crack law yet, the crack house law yet. Um, there is a law. If you provide a place for people to do drugs or drink alcohol without a permit, it's considered a crack house. No. Oh my God. Yeah. And there was really serious consequences when that law came into effect. Was this during that time? No. Okay, right. This was right, right after I stopped. Wow. But um, we never thought of those consequences at all. 
No, you're like 20. Like, let's yeah. just let's just do it. Yeah, let's, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's just have a party. Fuck yeah. it, let's just do it. If, you know, whatever happens, happens, girl. But let's let's do it and have fun. Yeah, and create community. I really felt it was about community. It was during the AIDS crisis. And I felt that it was really important for people to lose themselves, whether it was for five or six or seven hours and just dance and get lost in that moment. Because the reality of what, you know, our generation lived through was, you know, like Auschwitz. I mean, unless you were there, you can't really understand what it was like. I'm so glad you brought that up because I think, you know, of course people, this is not one of those, oh, those were the good old days times, but the, the nineties was a very special time. You know, there was no Instagram. People weren't posting pictures. It was a very, there was something gritty about it and underground, but also very just unifying. It felt like such a time of community and Really, I think that's the irony of it was our friends were literally dying. Well, I can I mean, answer you the question of why it felt like that. I mean, we were very much connected to New York. You know, we had, you know, Club Courtesy in New York yeah. and we would let all those same, the crowds of people that really made things happen were about 150 to 200 people in every city, right. Paris, London, New York, LA. We all ended up knowing each other and became like a big family. But I think the reason why there was so much passion to what was going on was because it literally could be somebody's last night out. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we all, whether we were young, we were in the second wave, but we saw it and we knew it and there was no cocktail yet and it could have been any one of us at any time. And I think that we created, whether you were in fashion or film or art or you my art was bringing people together and giving them a a place to meet each other and explore and start relationships. People created like it was their last night on earth. And that's what I truly believe because of the AIDS crisis, you know? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You'd see people out of the club with KP lesions, you know, you'd see people thin, like it was there. Mm -hmm. It was just, yeah. Yeah. This sense of, you know, urgency. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's why people like Keith Haring were so, epic in what they turned out because they knew it was coming to a close, you know, and we were lucky enough to see that greatness. You know, we were lucky enough to see people create for themselves and become stars in their worlds, not based on Instagram, not based on wanting to be famous. They did it because they couldn't do anything else. They were not influencers. They were influencing Okay. <laughs> and still resonating till today. Till yes. today. Yes. You so see, we're gonna, you see yeah. kids walking down the street with, you know, t-shirts of bands that were even old when I was young and yeah. you were like the Ramones, you know, or they're hooked into the eighties and nineties. So desperately it's like, get your own culture, <laughs> right? you know, but they, they're desperate for something often, something that's authentic yes, and absolutely. something that was created because now, you know, it would take a band maybe two years of playing horrible gigs before they get signed. Right. Now they get signed based on numbers. Yeah, And when absolutely. they you see them live, they can't perform. That's it's right. a really interesting, and I don't want to sound like an old person. It's the curse and the greatness of the time we're living through. You know, and I think those two things are going to come together soon. But I think right now it's out of balance. Well, that's the first yes. question. You know, how many followers do you have? Yeah. Why? Where before it was really about creating something, you know, organic. Absolutely. And, and I don't think that's, happening a lot i'm sure it's still happening it's not happening a lot like it was back then i have a friend called guinevere vancinas who is one of the great models still to this day and she started in the early 90s and she's really amused like apollo reversi and 
Stephen Klein and she's still has a career because she, she wasn't just like a clothes hanger, but her agency started saying you're losing jobs because you're not on Instagram. Oh my God. And she refused to do it for a long time. And then she finally started. But, um, you know, when I casted my movie, it came down to like, we can get into that in a moment, but the final three, and it's just not that deep, you know, it's, you think it's deep from the other side, but it's not like they all did good tape. They did good auditions. And then the first question was, what are the numbers? You find yourself between a rock and a hard place, right? Yeah. It's like, what are the numbers? It's like, oh, do I really want to hire this person, you know, over the number? Like right. number, you know, right. well, then who's going to see this movie if I get the person right. that I really want? You know what I'm Total, saying? Totally. So you're, you find yourself in this place where it's just like, oh, my God, am I really about to succumb to this number thing? You know? So the so lounge crazy. So ends, lounge. and then what's next? And then we did this, Jimmy and I did this club with Marcus Wyatt, who still has a huge career. Huge. Yeah. yeah. It was a little baby, career. baby DJ then. Yeah. Yes. We found this play, this this place on Western Avenue, which was like so far out of town in yeah, those it's like days. Yeah, Koreatown. Yeah. yeah. Silver Lake <laughs> was not even, ha- Silver Lake didn't happen until, the Silver Lake 40 didn't even happen until 93 or 94. Right. So going all the way to Western Avenue, but we thought, okay, we'll, we'll be away from the cops. The um, There is a parking lot in the back and there was like a ballroom and an upstairs library and it was a Czechoslovakian meeting hall. <laughs> I live. It's so genius. So I was like, well, let's call it Prague because Prague was kind of happening at that time. <laughs> and, and, um, and, you know, we were, uh, we were good business people. We took the money from the parking lot as well. Oh, smart. And Victor Rodriguez DJing upstairs. And Victor Rodriguez DJing upstairs in the library. In the library and yeah. it was hosted by the Funk Essentials girls yep. who had the coolest, hippest shop in town. Like their clothes were on the cover of British Vogue and you couldn't even buy the clothes in England. So we really sort of then really started solidifying our community. You know, it was between galleries and stores and nightclubs and we were a clan. And um, we brought in little, little Louis Vega from New York. We brought in Joey Arias when Robin S hit number one. Um, we had her perform. We brought in Hollywood Lawn. We uh, we were always trying to do cultural exchanges with New York and London. Yeah, yeah. fashion shows. Mm-hmm. Always fashion shows, installations. You know, if if we didn't make any money, I didn't really care. Like one day a month, because and I didn't care if people got it. I just felt it was important that people saw it, and it wasn't about the money. Right. It was about. You know, people need to hear it or yeah. see it right. or be exposed to yes. it. And so, you know, I always got into fights with my partners because they're like, it's going to call, we're not going to make one dime and we may not make any money for two weeks over this. And I'm like, well, you know, this is about us. We have a job. This is our job, you know, and I took that part of it really seriously. Prague became very celebrity heavy. And from that point, there was only one gossip person, as I said, but I always made sure that people felt safe in my clubs and they could just act out and do whatever they wanted to do until we got raided by the Vice Squad. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Ta-da. You start yeah. attracting enough attention and then... So was that the end of... No, we were so brazen. On? Okay. <laughs> we, um, we served liquor till six o'clock or whenever I felt like it was time to go. Yes. Wow. And um, 
we found out when we got raided that there was no dance permit there and Uh there was only a beer and wine permit there and we were bringing in the bar so downstairs we would only serve beer and wine and then we remember we made the upstairs private right so we were still serving full boozy liquor (laughs) upstairs to like six o'clock in the morning after getting raided you know why not you gotta push push the boundaries and nothing happens yeah yeah it's not like we're gonna get raided next week too and you know i've got two more looks lined up i mean come on i'm sure (laughs) but this wasn't the i mean Prague wasn't the end i i don't even think it was you know, the climax, the climax was cherry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did a few clubs in between them, but, um, cherry to me, it was the concept was because of the AIDS crisis. I really wanted, it was dangerous. The thought at the time, which is funny to think about my clubs were always mixed. I never believed in, in, in living in a ghetto myself or being in a ghetto. I thought we won that right at the Stonewall. Right. So to me, it was always important to put people, especially in LA, as I said earlier, into a room and create fabric and scare people a little bit. Put them into a place, you know, a hip hop person dancing next to a drag queen, dancing next to a socialite. Then you start having real excitement and real energy. And so we decided that we were going to do a club based in glam rock sensibilities, David Bowie, T-Rex, the New York Dolls, mix it up with current hits so that we could break current acts as well. But all genres from new wave to a little bit of heavy metal to punk, you know, all those different genres. And we, we went out looking for great Queens and you would think this this town would be loaded with them. But as you know, we had to actually make them. (laughs) They, they found us and they would get up on stage and then we gave them the stage to act out in and we hold the record, I believe, for the longest running club in LA history for eight years. Wow. E did an hour long special on it called Hollywood Nights Cherry. Yep. Wow. It was a document it was called a documentary television then. Yep. It wasn't called reality TV yet. Right. But the reason why I, I think it was the best work that we ever did was um it was it was dangerous. The the energy felt dangerous to people that had never Rock and roll used to be a form of, of you know, hip-hop is now that. Right. But rock and roll was a dangerous thing, and gay people had not necessarily... The truth is gay people actually really had a lot to do with the look of rock and roll, but a lot of gay people, and of rock and roll happening, but a lot of gay people had never experienced that real guttural feeling of rock. Yeah, those right. worlds didn't necessarily mm-hmm. collide. And even yeah. though Prague was very mixed, mm-hmm. it, it, this was very different from what... Prague was. Yeah. It was total departure. And also what made it really exciting is that when grunge, all those bands got money, they all moved to LA. So, you know, every night, you know, there was people from Hole or the Smashing Pumpkins or, you know, some of the older, you know, of course, you know, everybody in LA from Jane's Addiction, the Beastie Boys, Kiss, it just went on. It was generational. You know, every rock and roll band of every generation came in through those doors and we also um, got away with a lot of nudity and um, we, uh, you know, would have contests for like, you know, giveaways. And for example, we gave away the new whole record. This is a fantastic story. Courtney Love was all glamorous at that moment because she did the People versus Larry Flint. Right. right. 
but then the second whole record was coming. So she came like in ripped fishnets and dancing and acting. I'm not going to put words. I don't know if she was fucked up or not, but she seemed like she was being wild, very punk again, right? And uh, she put on a song to test the single and it didn't go over. It was off the celebrity skin. So she went up into the into the DJ booth and she uh, put on, I think it was Malibu. And um, she said, hey, everybody, it's Courtney. This is my new song. If you like it, yell. If you don't, well, fuck you. And she took her top off, grabbed the mic from Joseph Brooks, the DJ, and gave us a topless performance, right? Which was gorgeous, right? And then I love it. when the record came out, we did a giveaway and I was hosting the, the, con- the contest and I said, you have to show whole to get whole. Well, everyone pulled down their pants and showed whole. <laughs> Guys and girls? Yep. Oh, wow. But <laughs> the person who won the record pushed their ear out and they showed me their ear hole. And of course, they won. I love that. Isn't that amazing? Hole, here's, you didn't specify yeah. Yeah. which hole. Exactly. Here's a hole. Yeah. That's actually awesome. Yeah. And, and Cherry was the last moment before things went digital. We had a website and we actually had somebody taking photos at the end. But there were still no cameras and it it just, people could still really be free. And the thing that really changed in Los Angeles is that the moment that people had cameras, celebrities stopped going out. People of note stopped going out. So just the phones. I mean, because people had cameras, but really having the cameras on the phones. Ruined nightlife and bottle service ruined nightlife as we knew it. Oh, absolutely. You know. So, which is... Yes, because I think that Cherry and it was really the end of an era. It was. It was really the end of a very special time, and things really changed after that. So Cherry ends, and what what year was? I think it was two thousand and one, uh, or two thousand and one. I think, and um, I didn't know. I knew that I didn't want to be in nightlife anymore. Um, you did. I mean, eight years—it's a long time for one club, but you had already been yeah, doing yeah. it. It felt like eternity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It felt like eternity. And I wanted to move on and start producing events because I wanted to be able to work with bigger budgets and have bigger moments. Right. And, um, you know, we have somebody in common. And I was very lucky. I had found out that um, my friend Ariane Phillips had just started styling Madonna. And I had found out that um, Madonna was putting out a record and it was Ghetto Fab. So I clacked off to Warner Brothers to Orlando Porta, who was head of the dance department. And I said, listen, I have a really good idea for this Madonna party. I didn't even have a bank account at the time. And I'll out myself. (laughs) I had just gotten sober the year before. Right. And nightlife had taken its toll on me. And so they were like, you want to have a meeting with the marketing department? I was like, yeah. Sure do. And he said, no, we're not doing anything. We're only doing something in New York with Dolce & Gabbana, and I forgot where they were doing Irving Plaza, maybe. I forgot or Webster Hall. Just, I forgot where. Where we're not doing anything here. I said, "Well, you're missing the moment." Yeah. And I had balls of steel. I said, "Listen, I used to see her dancing at the Catch in the late '80s. We hung out in the same clubs. My friend Brett Whitkey, who had Boys and Girls, where I met everybody in one night. My best friend to this day is Kathy Young, who is George Michael's girlfriend at the time." I met every single person that I'm still friends with 30 years later in that room at Boys and Girls. But Madonna used to go there. She used to go to BC, and I used to see her at the catch. And I said, if you're going to do Ghetto Fab, 
there is only one. They're all closed in New York. The only place left is catch one. And his eyebrows lifted up and he looked at me. He went, do not embarrass me. I will set up a meeting. So I met with the head of marketing. His name was Craig Kostich. And I pitched him this whole idea. He said, great, we'll set up a meeting and uh, you can present your idea. Well, I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> <laughs> and um, A cute party. Yeah, right. Hello. Well. Hello. So I didn't know what, what presenting meant in corporate terms right. at all. But I talked to my friend Kenny Baird, who did all the installations at Area in New York, yep. and was an amazing production designer. He did everything for Floria Sigismundi, and he helped me with this presentation. But again, he's a creative. And he said, we just have to hire the right people. It's like shooting a video without the camera, and I can help you do that. So don't be afraid. So we put together this. I went downtown and got a faux crocodile leather purse. I had Madonna made in like a faux gold necklace. I put in gold tips or bond cigarettes, everything like, you know, some crack whore would have or some, you know, some chick trying to work the ladder, right? Yes. And, um, And we put the pitch on Mondrian Hotel Stationery, which was in receivership and like it was shady the mondrian at that time like shady this is before it was all redone yeah, yeah. real shady lady going on in there, right <laughs> so when i got to warner brothers i um i cracked like about 20 cracks because when you'd walk in the old warners you'd walk in there was a desk and then they'd send you back to the offices and to the right they'd always have that door open and it's the famous conference room with the Herman Miller table that is long as a football field with chairs so when the lady when the receptionist said oh you'll be going in there she died I died a hundred deaths I thought my career is over before it even starts so I went in there and it was like Bob Merlis who had worked in the who's PR for Warners for like a hundred years Liz Rosenberg the legendary you know publicist of Madonna and Cher and Katie Lang and I'm forgetting now who the president of of Warner's was but I was sitting there and I'm getting a stink eye now from Orlando Porta and Craig Kostich and there I am clutching this little purse <laughs> I live with no pass outs no leave behinds oh, no. no budget right. like- nothing all it was was a creative idea with a creative concept on a piece of a handwritten a font right yeah Immerse, honey. Immerse, boo. Uh-huh. So I handed it over to the president, and I was Damn about right. to start crying, right? Like, I was like, I didn't know. And he looked at it. He goes, what is this? And I said, this is the proposal. I live. And he that? dumped it out on the table, and he started putting everything apart, and every and he, then he started laughing. And he picked up the proposal, and he read it intently. And um, he then dismissed me. And I walked out. And everyone started laughing when he was laughing. And he then said, thank you. I didn't get to answer any questions or say anything. Were you mortified? I died. And I went in the car and I started crying. And I went to Patty's in Burbank for comfort food. And I called my machine. I believe I had a machine still. Wow. And I kept checking my machine and checking my machine like... 
thinking I was going to get a message from Orlando or Craig Costich saying, yeah, you know, you done, you done fucked up. Yeah. And we're yeah. never giving you another fucking single again to, you know, at right. any one of your little parties that you right. throw ever right. again. Right. Right. Oh no. But I actually got a call that was left that day, which is unheard of saying they love it. They want to move forward. So I produced the worldwide Ooh. launch of Madonna's music record. I live. Yeah. That was my first job. Balls of steel. Yeah. I mean, so much of that is about the confidence of your idea because people will come in with this whole budget and this and that. And it's like, you know, no real idea really. Well, and I'm sure that they told the story to M, you know, I'm mm-hmm. sure that they were like, and then this queen came in with like a bow leather and this, that, and then and she was, and she must've been like, wait, what? He said, what? I think that sounds fabulous. Let me see. Totally. And Carice was And that's mad. very her. Yeah. Very her. <laughs> you know, something and, she would do. Yeah. And it was totally authentic to her. And the thing is, what you don't know, you can't be afraid of. And of that's course. how I've done yeah. everything in my life. I just didn't really know the consequences of bombing like that. Right. So I didn't, you know, when you get older, you become tentative and scared a little yeah, of bit. Of course. But when you're that age, and I knew the power that I had. I knew the street cred I had. Yes. I, that's the one thing that I had. I had a press kit about five inches deep. And, you know, now they call them consultants. I gave it away for free to every fashion designer, every public. But I knew that I knew what was going down on the street. Oh, you had something behind it. You knew that you could bring it. That was the one thing I knew. Yes. For sure. All that other stuff, you can learn. They can tell you, okay, you got to do a budget. I mean, that's all stuff that's just incidental. Like anybody can do, figure that out. Exactly. Not everybody's going to have an idea. On the job training. So you start doing... <laughs> so this... <laughs> yeah. To say the least. To say the very least. So this starts your career event planning. As an event producer, and um, again, right place, right time. They LA was like the outback. There would be a details party, if you guys remember here, or interview magazine party. Yep. Yeah. And premieres that were so tacky with like horrible looking waiters with colored cummerbunds, and it was just... Well, it was just oh, yeah. not chic. It was like 1982. It was not. And, but they started using celebrities on the cover of fashion magazines. Then all of a sudden, they begrudgingly had to do parties here. So I had done that Madonna party. And then friends of mine who had written about it at my clubs, Merle Ginsburg, Rose Apodaca at Women's Wear Daily and W, they put me up to pitch for the Oscar event, which at the time was not a conflict against the European collections. So all of the designers in the world were here for the Oscars. So I got that gig. I didn't make one dime because I put every single cent into that job. Wow. And um, it, was, it was sponsored by the Diamond Information Center, White Hot Diamonds. And um, I crushed it. I have to say I did. And it was like the greatest advertising on the planet because every designer was there. And then I started working for Vogue and, um, Lisa love they're, they're going to call for a referral. So if they call Lisa, then Lisa would refer me. And there weren't those jobs. It wasn't like I was taking another event producers clients. Those people had just started creating this. Exactly. So I really brought my sort of street, realness to it and I also brought what I felt was really important and I felt that it worked because people would come here and think what could they get out of LA we have to do this party we're going to take da, 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 da. and I'd say you can't take the smart thing is that you would only get it done once 
I said, why don't you come here and become part of our community? Why don't you bring in a charity or have a celebrity host? This is before celebrities were being paid to show up at parties. Have a celebrity host and have them bring in their charity and start creating community between your brand and, you know, the people who are the luminaries of this town and you'll have a long-term relationship. So I brought a lot of those things that I learned in the nightclub business into doing events. And of course, the hard part was learning how to run an office and children (laughs) and headaches and 16-hour days and no offices were open here yet. So you'd have to be dealing with Paris or London. You'd be up at 3.30 in the morning and every kid you hire, you know, whether they went to USC or whatever, they think event producing is so glamorous. They just see the end result of the carpet and the gifts and the things. You know, they want all the presents it's damn hard work. Yeah. You are on call 24-7. They own you. There's no managing it. And you did it for? I did it for 10 years. I worked with everybody from wow. uh, Mr. Armani. I did the first time Mr. Armani was here for the Oscars in 15 years. I opened the new Oscar de la Renta. I opened George Jensen's store. I opened Martin Margiela's store. I worked for every major fashion house in the world. And then... Like what's always happened in my life, I woke up one day and I said, this is not right for me. I came from the nightclub business. I can't do this one more minute. I'm going to have a heart attack or a stroke or um, a nervous breakdown. And I'm not really qualified. Everyone said, you're qualified. to do. You could do whatever you want. But I had no idea. I didn't have a college degree. You know, I didn't know what I was going to do. And a friend of mine said, well, why don't you produce movies and I was like I hate the movie people <laughs> nothing ever gets done yeah because even in when you were doing the event planning I think it was into, it was a lot of fashion things but I don't think you really did a whole lot of movie premieres right. and like celebrity oriented kind of I, I birthday did, parties and, no I didn't yeah. do anything personal because personal things like weddings I did one wedding for Vidal Sassoon's okay, daughter right. but like doing personal stuff like that and I did um, the premiere of um, Inside Deep Throat But yeah, the studios were not hiring me because my sensibility was too, um, it was polished, but it was also street. I was still, streaming hadn't really started yet in that way. So It's a a different beast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's also a different mentality, at least from their point of view. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And the fashion people were another universe. Yeah, of course. And I lived for it. You know what I mean? Like I grew up, what saved my life was reading Details Magazine and Interview Magazine, you know, and learning you know, as I said earlier about those things that were out there, you know, I, it was my salvation, you know, for being a young gay kid and a figure skater that was bullied, you know, I was bullied relentlessly and called figure fag, you know, and my only salvation was ice skating to be out there where nobody could like punch me. And I was on my own and to listen to records and to read magazines about places that had people like me. Right. You know, so I think we've all had similar, you know, coming from the outside you know it's you know that's always been where you think i'm white and jewish and come from a privileged place but that's not the case i lived i came from the outside and i didn't fit any place well and and those are the feelings the feelings are still the same regardless of the demographic you know Mm -hmm. the feelings of not being a part of being Mm -hmm. an outsider being a fringe yeah you know are still the same yeah, and that's why I always made my clubs, I, I created safe spaces for people. Right. And not in today's world is a safe space, but 
really to act out and to really go for it. And you know what? Because we had to run, you know, during those days, honey, you heard a whistle, you knew some queen was getting beaten down or, you know, you, you clacked real fast because, you know, you didn't know what was coming up behind you or if the car that was coming up right from behind you was going to, you know, jump out and a bunch of guys were going to fag bash That's you, right. Right. you know, especially when AIDS was happening because then you deserved it. You know, there was that layer of it. Yep. So, you know, so to finish the story, I, uh, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I was looking at my office and I was like, I can't bear it. I really, I can't like, I come from another place and th- this is great. I- I'm so grateful of these creative moments, but I'm not going to survive this. You know, it's, it's eating me alive. And for what you work in fashion, it's not like you're packing away the coins. You know, I was famous in a weird way, but I didn't have the money to back that up. And yet you're working these hours that That are insane and for what? And, you know, I was heading towards 40. And and so my friend said, why don't you um, make a movie? And I was like, well, they never get done. And the very next day, James St. James who is a very, he, they coined the term celebutante after yes. him and Lisa E, who we now know as Lisa Edelstein from House. Um, they were New York celebutantes. His life story, his first book was called Disco Bloodbath that became a movie called Party, Party Monster. Monster. Yeah, yep. about Michael Alec. Yep. Yeah. If you don't know the story, kids, it was a club kid murder mm-hmm. that you look, you know, Check it out. Google it. it. Google it to believe it. it Because if we told you a body sat in an apartment, (laughs) then got thrown into a river, washed up on Staten Island, they had it for two years, how many headless torsos? Oh, and that was after they, I think they they sawed him to death and poured bleach down his throat. Mm -hmm. And they left him in the bathtub and they asked the drug dealer to come and give him 20 bags of heroin. Yeah, that happened. Club promoter. Yeah. So James's second book, he sent me The Galleys. And uh, that's when the book isn't, it's not in its final form yet. And um, I read it and it was called Freak Show. And the first half of the book was a thinly veiled version of his high school experience. And the second half of the book is the way he wishes he would have acted. So the first half of the book, he gets sent from his mother to go live with his father. Who was played by the fabulous Bette Midler. Yes, by Bette Midler, everybody. I live. And, um, she was really good in it, too. Miss Mav, honey. Mav, she was great. And you know the movie. Thank you for watching it. Oh, come on now. Really? I know. But you know what? Not Stop that it's an important movie self. to watch, but the, the first half of the book and the movie is about this boy who is a fluid kid. He's not transgendered. And um, he's eccentric and really precocious. And he has to go live in a red state. And they start teasing him. And then they start bullying him. And it escalates to a beatdown where he's put into a coma. Yeah. And that's what happened to James St. James in, in real life. Wow. And um, the second half of the movie and the book is what he wishes he would have done. He became the leader. He found out that they were the shadow kids. That he never saw anyplace else. And they were all the outsiders. He became their leader and their savior. And at the time the book was written, it hadn't really been done. But he ran for Homecoming Queen. Yep. And um, I'm not going to tell you the ending because you should go watch it. Absolutely. You should, it's absolutely. streaming now. It's yes. Yeah. It's on Hulu. Super important. Yeah. It's a very important movie. And it's starring uh, Bette Midler, Abigail Breslin, Anna Sophia Robb. 
Laverne Cox. Yes, Laverne is in it. Bette Midler, as I said. Um, and my uh, Ian Drew and Billy Bloom, the lead, is played by the really talented Alex Lothar. Yes. But um, I... Um, he was really good in it. Fantastic. Amazing. James thought he was incredible. But what happened was, again, I went after something I thought I would never do. I, I called James every day for six weeks when the book came out. He thought he was going to get a big deal for it. But... It was too early to touch the material, a gay kid or a trans kid or a fluid kid. So and is that what changed your mind about wanting to do a movie? Was this material? You found this I book cried. and you decided. I cried when I read the book, right. the speech when he goes to homecoming about how we're all different, no matter how popular we are or no matter how cool or a football player or whatever, we all inside. Are a freak. Our freak. Yeah. And that's the message of the movie and to have empathy and to know that, that we're all fronting. Everyone's fronting. Yep. And I bawled when I read this book and I thought, why didn't I have this book when I was a kid? So I called my friend who had um, suggested I produce and he had um, made a great movie with Fred Roos and um, I am for it was starring Samantha Morton and I'm having a, a moment right now where I can't remember, but um, we partnered we optioned the book. We attached the writers. We worked very closely with the writers to make sure it kept the voice. We kept James in the process of that. We attached the first person was Flower Films. They attached Trudy Drew Barrymore. S- yeah, Drew Barrymore's company, Flower Films. We attached Trudy Styler, Sting's wife, who's an incredible producer in her own right. And she directed. Yeah, and this is her debut. Her what happened debut. was I had brought on the uh, original director and. Um, he, I was so close to the movie business, I never could believe it was as corny as it could be. <laughs> but it is because you, the reason why the same people are in the movie is because the people who can trigger the, the foreign sales. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you wait forever to find out if one of these 20 maybe actresses, because the kids don't bring the money. So it was going to be Sarah Jessica Parker. And we lost her. Then it was going to be Leslie Mann. As the mom. Mm-hmm, as okay. the mom, as right. Muv. And then we lost her and we lost our director um, due to timing. And I knew the whole thing was going to fall apart. And I still held the option. My partner, Jeffrey, and I, we had a great lawyer. said, don't sign away. They'll throw you under the bus. Not meaning them, but anybody will. Right. right. So Trudy came to me and said, can I direct? And I will bring Colleen Atwood, Academy Award winner. Oh, my God. To do the costumes. Wow. Dante Spinotti, director of photography. And, um, and I'll bring Bette Midler. And I said, where do I sign? Right. Where do I sign? It was an eight year journey, you know, to bring it to the screen. And we premiered at the Berlin Ollie and we were nominated. I'm so proud of the Amnesty International Award for doing tackling material that was very difficult. The little boy actor, how adorable and fantastic was he too? It was, oh, was, so, it was so hard to find that actor because so all cute. the kids that were auditioning were giving us Disney acting, oh, you know, with yeah. the eyebrows and everything. So I, um, and if that role was not played well, the whole movie would fall apart. Yeah. So I said, let's yeah. get a classically trained kid from England. So we started looking in England and he had done some great episodic work at that point. He's on fire now. After our movie, he did It's Not the End of the Fucking World, you know, that series. He's, he's an incredible, incredible actor. And I have to say, everybody um, that did this movie from from both sides of the camera did it for scale and did it because they believed in the story. So and awesome. so you could feel that it was palpable 
during the filming, how important this was. And Bette Midler's comment, you know, was, you know, just make sure that I have heaters. I mean, you know, right. she, everyone did this because they well, wanted yeah. this movie to happen yeah. and they believed it was important for kids. And if one kid doesn't commit suicide, we did our job. If one kid doesn't, you know, self hurt themselves, we did our job. And if one kid that's a bully sees this movie and realizes what they're doing and stops bullying, we did our job. So I, I feel like it's an important film and I, 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 I'm really proud of it. And it know? came out at the right time. I don't think it would have been uh, received the way it's being received now had it been done earlier. Like I really believe that this film has come out at the perfect time. It has a lot of relevance now, you know? So you guys, you have to go see Freak Show. It's streaming on Hulu. Listen to Kim, listen to Lewis, <laughs> and see Freak Show. It's fantastic. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, it, it is. the world to me. Oh, it's fantastic. And you it's wild how it. much our lives are paralleled in a way to <laughs> having that strange sort of um, growing up where you're, you're single goal oriented. Yeah. And, um, you know, you're, it's like being a child actor, really. You know, and you learn your worth from applause, which took me along my whole lifetime. I'm recovering from that part of it. Who say that? You know, say that. Honey. But it also trans, you know, it translates into all these other things you end up doing because figure skating, yeah. dance, it takes a tremendous amount of discipline and commitment. For sure. Yeah. You learn that, like, I'll go past the point of giving up. I mean, past the point of it's not going to happen. You know what I mean? Because right. the way I was taught, was never give up, right. and it, and it's never good enough. Right. Exactly, because be you're cleaner. always going to push yeah. that, yeah. push it a little, a little farther, yeah. you know. And yeah. so that's the curse and the blessing, you know, of right. of life growing up as a dancer or a figure skater. Yeah. You know, you have that voice inside of you, your coach or your teacher, always telling you to push you yourself farther and not to feel anything. Exactly. And at sometimes that doesn't serve you. When right. you get older, Just it doesn't serve you. Pushing through that pain, yeah. even yeah, yeah to yeah. the point where you're like physically. Maybe I shouldn't, you know. Yeah, it's absolutely Maybe I should sit, sit my ass down. It's absolutely <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you have to go, but we're going to touch on Giorgio's a little I know, let's bit. wrap this up. We have to Giorgio's. do a little bit of Giorgio. Okay. So eight years now, is that Giorgio's, right? Giorgio's, we, we turned six years in April. Six years. Yes. I hadn't done a club Amazing. in 13 years, I think. Wow. And Andre Bellage asked me who owns the Chateau Marmont and the Mercer in New York and the Children House. He had owned the Standard at the time. Um, he asked me to come back and do a club and I said, well, my friends are too old. They don't go out anymore. <laughs> and he said, well, they go out every place else, but here you should think about it. Hmm. And he said, I already have a great DJ in mind, Adam 12. And I had hired Adam 12 a lot doing events. He you know, happened to be president Obama's DJ, you know, just a, a little few, artist called Prince for 20 right, years. Yeah, just a few just little a gigs. A few little receipts. Mm -hmm. You know, no, nothing big. Diddy, Stevie Wonder, Queen no. Latifah. Yeah. So we That's sat... Just a bomb-ass DJ. Yeah. Yeah, yeah very yeah. talented. Beyond. Yeah. And so I sat down with him. I said, okay, I'll take the meeting, but I had no intentions of doing it, right? Right. But when he I never had done a disco club before. And, and when I sat down with Adam, his enthusiasm of doing this, he had all the same thoughts that I did. Did he so walk in with a faux crocodile purse? No, he did not. <laughs> but he did serve it to me really well though. Yes. And we um 
we start talking about our thoughts about it. And I said, listen, these are the rules. We're only doing it in the way that I know how to do it. We, we're going to go to the hotel and nobody from the hotel can come in unless we say we have complete control of the door. No, this is not about money. It only fits a hundred people. So some rotten, gross turd that shows up wiggling thousand dollar bills is not coming in. This is going to be a cool space based on if you're cool on what Adam and I believe is cool. Not that you're young and you can act like an uptown lady in some designer frock. Not that who your mommy is. Not what TV show you're on. Say that. None of it. And no cameras. So everyone can come in and it becomes a democracy. So we start agreeing on everything. And then he goes, what do you want to call it? I said, sunset people. I can't sing, but doing it right. Night after night. I'm like, I did Giorgio Moroder's 70th birthday. And Giorgio Moroder invented disco. Donna Summer, you know, was his muse. And he won three Academy Awards or more for Call Me with Blondie. And it just, it's endless. Um, And um, he goes, oh my God, he is the biggest inspiration of my musical career. He had a band called She Wants Revenge. So, um, So we said, okay, let's do it. And when we walked out, Lauren Hutton, who was one of the stars of American Gigolo, which the song Call Me by Georgia Moroder, he won the Academy Award for by Blondie, was standing at the valet. I went, it is a sign from above. We have to do this. And we opened and that thing went on fire. Oh, yes. Oh, and I mean fire. Lightning in a bottle, fire. We don't allow lineups because I never want that. You know, it's very, we started off with you had to have the password and we would release the password to a list of people, you know, that day. And then we made cards and it was everybody, I mean, everybody. I st- we, From Joan and Jackie Collins, real disco people that were at Studio 54 like them and Nikki Haskell and Cherry Vanilla, one of the last living Warhol people, you know, to all of a sudden there's Jody Watley. I mean, I died. Original Soul Train. Train. Dancer. Original so that we were a Soul Train house growing up, not an American bandstand. Right. And she, you know, with whacking with her fan, you know, went on to Shalimar and then, you know, became a huge solo artist. She's in there. David LaChapelle, the great photographer, is there with the great fashion muse, Daphne Guinness. I mean, it went on and on and on. I mean, from Leonardo DiCaprio, Bradley Cooper, Selena Gomez, uh, I mean, it just, the whole entire cast of Empire before, you know, they all went on. One night there was a table with Denzel Washington Common, um, Lenny Kravitz, Cuba Gooding Jr., and they didn't know, but I brought George Clinton up to them, and of course they kissed the ring of George. <laughs> but we As went, you would want to do. Hello. But the great story of this is that we went through that year. Giorgio came the first year we were open. His wife was coming. And said, Brian, I never saw people dancing to my songs. And you know how sometimes celebrities can feign like humanity realness? Right. He wasn't doing that. He had been in retirement and he was teary-eyed. And we put on I Feel Love and the place just went bananas. And he went, I never saw people dancing to my music. I didn't take the coca. I was just going from one record to the next record. And um, people were coming. The original three girls from Bananarama... Everyone was coming and like 
bowing down to him. Dita Von Tees, I mean, just everybody. And um, he said, do you know this band, Daft Punka? And I said, yes. He goes, they make a song about me. I make the record with them, with Nile Rodgers. And we went through the whole year. He won the Grammy at 73. And six years later... That's so awesome. We don't allow press. We don't allow cameras. They're still coming through the doors. I mean, I am saying names, but like, you know, Academy Award winner Amy Adams and great rock stars like Billy Idol. I mean, it's still packed and fun. And the reason why people come is because they come to dance. 100%. Because like you said, going back full, it's about the music. Yeah. Yes. And they dance their butts off. And all of a sudden it's two o'clock in the morning and they're sweating from head to toe. And they're like, I forgot how great it was to dance. Yeah. 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 So there you have it, guys. Oh my goodness. This is awesome. Yes. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. Thank you so, so, so much. You're so, so, so welcome. (laughs) I hope I don't, I hope I gave some value. Absolutely. And to LA, I mean, you know, what you've created. LA is my lady. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Brian. Oh, okay. You gotta, well, he left. So Brian has gone. <laughs> like every fabulous person, he had somewhere to be, another appointment, which is all good with us. But he left before the work of the week. So it's just me and Kim this time around. So your work of the week is? Work of the week is these Japanese eye drops. They are from Japan. So you have, yeah, no, don't be like David, our uh, producer, is just looking at me like, what? <laughs> You will understand in a minute. So if you have like an interview, you know, maybe you stayed up a little late the night before. That looks like perfume. Oh, I know. Literally, you feel like your eyes are on fire when you put them in your eyes, but they make them shockingly white. Really? Yeah. So it's like a little refresher. It's almost like menthol. Okay. So what is the name of this? They're called Santa FX. Oh, like Santa Claus? Santa, like S-E-N-T-E, like Santa Oh, yes. Yeah. Santa FX Neo. And it's in a very futuristic kind of little bottle. It's giving me Shiseido. Handy. Yeah. Are you bold? Do you want to try them? Um, I can't because I have contacts. Oh, you have lenses. contacts. Okay. You don't want to do that. David. <laughs> <laughs> very politely said, his head. absolutely no. not. But yeah. So that's my work of the week. I love it. Okay. Yeah. So my work of the week is It's My Party by Jennifer Lopez. So... <laughs> On a whim, I went to see Jennifer Lopez at the forum, and she was fabulous. She speaks to every level of being to me, and I don't know. It was fabulous. It was glittery. She gave a fantastic show. You know, she's a fabulous dancer, performer, singer. She just gives it all to you, and I just lived, lived, lived so that's my work of the week, Miss Jennifer Lopez with <laughs> It's My Party Tour. It was fabulous. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to Work Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. And you can follow us on Instagram at Work Podcast. That's W-E-R-Q-U-E-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. You can also follow me at workdanceclass.com where I teach a monthly class to people who want to learn how to Vogue. It's a two-hour workshop and please come and enjoy yourself and express yourself and sweat. So that's workdanceclass.com and don't forget to follow us on IG, Work Podcast. Thank you guys. Thank you.